Welcome to another edition of Inside the War Room. Ryan Ray here as always. And today joined by someone I've been excited to talk to for quite some time now, Professor Rana Mitter, who is the Professor of History and Politics of Modern China, a fellow at St. Cross College and the author of the book, which is why I reached out, China's Good War, How World War II is Shaping a New Nationalism. And uh, it's, first off, it's lovely to have you today. How are you doing? I'm doing well, Ryan. It's uh, a very nice day, slightly late evening here in Oxford, England, where I'm speaking to you from, and real pleasure to be on your show. Yeah, and just so just so everyone's clear, um, he's the expert. I'm just the, <laughs> I'm the bubbling host here coming from Oxford, so I'll try to. I think you, you know plenty of things, Ryan. I look forward to talking about them. Uh, I'll try to keep it uh, as best I can. Okay, I heard you, uh, just as a, I don't think I told you this, I heard you on um, maybe the SubChina podcast. I heard you on a podcast a while back talking about this issue with another person, and it, it really fascinated me just because when I look at Chinese history and what's going on with China, um, there are the talking points that you can kind of hit China, you know, the CCP, Xi Jinping, this, that, and the other, the Uyghurs. But then as you delve into the story of China, you know, there's 1.3 billion people there. There's a lot of nuance. There's a lot of uh, massaging that you can do to the story. So um, first off, you have this book that you've, that you've written um, called China's Good War. Um, so what, what made you, with that title, what made you interested in the subject and, um, and what we'll go from there? Thanks very much indeed, uh, Ryan. I mean, that's a great way to get into that, that China conversation. And by the way, I think you may have heard me, and in, in fact, on the SubChina podcast, which is hosted by the fantastic Kaiser Guan. After hearing your wonderful podcast, I definitely recommend that people go and hear that one as well. So China's Good War. I mean, that's the title I gave this book, and it's subtitled How World War II is Creating a New Nationalism or Shaping a New Nationalism. And since there's not so much that's new about World War II, people might wonder what on earth those two ideas are doing uh, close to each other. So the title comes actually from a great American book, uh, the book, The Good War by the American oral historian Studs Terkel, who back in the 1980s, I think it was, published The Good War, a study really of interviews with a lot of GIs who had served in World War II. And the title Good War for him was used slightly ironically because on the one hand, there was nothing good about the war in terms of people being killed, you know, the horror of genocide and so forth. And also, you know, the treatment in some cases, perhaps of African-American soldiers, not equally with their white brothers. So that side of things, you know, was, was less than optimal to put it mildly, but overall it created this narrative of World War II being the war that we fought for democracy, that we fought for freedom. In other words, fought for values that in the end were lasting. And so there's a slightly, you know, affectionate but ironic tinge to the way that Studs Terkel used it. Now, switch to China. One of the things that has puzzled me uh, for, uh, let's say, 30 years, I mean, really, you know, 25, 30 years, the time that I've been going to China since I was an undergraduate student up to the, the present day, is that there's one aspect of propaganda, ideology, identity, whatever you want to call it in China, that you can see all over the place, whether it's in the museums in Beijing, or when you turn on your TV in uh, your hotel room, or, um, you know, even when you're just chatting to people on a day-to-day -day basis when you get to know them as, as family. And that's the place of World War II in that particular culture. Now, I say that because to those of us who are Americans or Brits, actually, you know, it ended more than 75 years ago, but World War II is still very much part of our core culture. We all have, you know, families or friends who, you know, have grandparents who fought in the war or were bombed in the Blitz, whatever it might, might be. But most of us who know a little bit about China, but not that much, don't tend to associate that period and its history with the Chinese. Sure, Chairman Mao, Cultural Revolution, those sorts of uh, elements, but not World War II. And the discovery I made and have continued to, to make it, it's still very much something in the present day, is that the Chinese think about World War II a lot in terms of their own identity. They think of it as we do, 
as a heroic period. They think of it also as a tragic period, but above all, they think of it as something that helps to shape them. 1945 to the present day, which we all understand what that means in the West, is actually a really big deal for the Chinese as well. And in that sense, it's become their good war in the sense that when people in China, top leaders or ordinary people are talking about their lives, they turn back over and over again to the World War II experience. So for President Xi Jinping going and speaking at international conferences, he may always say something like, you have to remember, you usually means the Americans in the room, you have to remember that in 1945, when the United Nations was set up, you know, while World War II was still being fought in the spring of 45, at that time, China was there. In fact, we signed the UN Charter before you did in the US. Or speaking, as I say, with, you know, kind of just quite a downhearted family in a city like Chongqing down in southwest China, they'll get out the tea and then say, you know, my grandmother used to tell me these stories about the day of victory against the Japanese in 1945. Really big deal for her at that time. And, you know, it still passes on through the family. So it was that sense of both affectionate, but also in some ways ironic belief that this terrible, terrible event could actually turn into a good war in terms of telling people stories about themselves and about their place in the world. And in that sense, the Chinese are just very much like us. So I was in China in um, November of 2019. I guess 2020 is kind of a blur, so 2019. And one of the couple of the stories that I have, I'm curious uh, uh, how you respond to these because it, it fits into what you're saying. Um, if you remember the movie Midway was coming out um, about that time and it played sure. in China while we were there and one of the people on the trip went to the theater and they talked about how the Chinese nationals all stood up and were cheering as the U.S. bombers took down the Japanese fleet in the movie. And it was like a moment of nationalistic pride, even though it was the American ships doing that. That's a one story. Um, couple that with a dinner we had with a Chinese official beforehand. Um, and he was talking about Japan and how much he was frustrated with Japan and how they have, you know, they had done all these things. And we're like, man, World War II has been a long time ago. And so, um, but to your point, this is kind of in their culture is that, they, they look back to this, they kind of have this long lens, long memory. Um, and so they have a very proud history and World War II seems to be something that they've really held on to. And it, it, it makes sense that it could shape how they view geopolitical issues today. I think that's absolutely right, Ryan. I mean, there's two thoughts that are sparked in my mind by your story about you know that dinner and uh, the kind of uh, chewing out of the Japanese that you got from, from those officials. One is that in some ways that collected memory which of course has been handed down through generations because very few people are alive now who are alive during those days. But the collective memory has been handed down of the atrocities committed against the, Jap the Chinese people uh, by the Japanese. And in this particular case, you know, the rape of Nanjing is perhaps the famous one, the horrific massacre of you know, many um, tens of thousands, maybe even more than that, civilians uh, in the city of Nanjing in 1937 to, to 38. But beyond that, there's also this strong sense that actually the wounds were never healed. So, you know, in France and Germany, of course, had this vicious war against each other in the European theater of World War II, but in large part because, of course, of the American occupation of Europe and then the reconstruction of Europe through the Marshall Plan and a whole variety of other things that brought the continent together, those, you know, wounds have essentially been healed and were healed a long time ago, even though they bubble up now and then a wound can, can bubble. And of course, that just never happened in Asia in quite the same way, partly because of the Communist Revolution, partly because Japan, of course, became um, uh, a country that allied with the United States. Essentially, that healing time that should have happened in the late 40s, early 50s, never did. And so those wounds are still very raw. And that can mean that on the one hand, China does, I think, in some ways, very justifiably, uh, 
hark back to what it feels are, you know, the, the lack of capacity to have a really kind of comprehensive forgiveness and uh, reconciliation with the old enemy across the, the sea. But it can also, I think, if I'm going to have to, to be honest about it, lead the Chinese sometimes to be a bit, you know, overly censorious about what's happened in Japan, because they're sometimes given to say, you know, the Japanese have never admitted what they did. Now, that's not the case. Actually, if you talk about the, the Nanjing massacre, the rape of Nanking, that terrible event, it's worth noting that actually it was brought to the attention of the Japanese public in the early 1970s by Japanese journalists, particularly a very brave writer called Honda Katsuchi, who uh, wrote in the Asahi Shimbun, one of the big mainstream newspapers in, in Japan, at a time when China, you know, under Mao, wasn't still really talking about those events very much. Now, 10, 15 years later, at a time when China felt that it wanted to make more of this particular set of events and revive memory of that part of its history, it started to go, you know, to, to stress very strongly the atrocities that had taken place. But the idea that the Japanese had done nothing to acknowledge this isn't really the case. It's, it's a much more complex situation than that. And occasionally when I'm in China, after we've had the second drink, I, I do have to point that out. Well, okay, so early in the book, you talk about um, the two major ideological differences between you know uh, Japan, which is imperialistic, and um, Chinese, which is nationalistic. Uh, obviously, Japan's aspirations were snuffed out in World War II, and they had to kind of have this reshaping of who they are and, and all the shame involved with that. How much do you think that has led to some of these problems where Japan kind of had this trajectory that was stopped pretty quickly, and, and, and China was trying to figure out their way through their nationalistic identity? I think it, it, it's hugely important in terms of the way in which the two countries have failed really to have more than a kind of lukewarm or a cool relationship at the, uh, the best. It's never been a warm relationship really uh, since uh, Chairman Mao came to power, certainly in, in 1949. And uh, there's not much sign that they're going to, to, to kind of see eye to eye at that, uh, at that point. I mean, you use these, these two um, kind of conceptual terms, which I, I do bring up in the book, which is that nationalism and the sense of Chinese nationalism is this long wave that runs all the way really from the late 19th century. And is certainly very much with us in the present day as anyone who looks at contemporary China can say. Japanese imperialism, absolutely not. I mean, yes, in the early 20th century, this huge, very violent force that took over large parts of Asia, Korea, Manchuria, and then, of course, eventually the, the war with China itself. But after 1945, after the defeat of Japan and after its reconstruction under a peace constitution sponsored by the US, Japan has been an economic giant. But, you know, in terms of military ambition, you know, it's, 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 it's a completely different sort of, uh, uh, sort of country. But I think that there is a, an issue in as much that China has been, I think, playing to a different sort of drum as well through its time. And we go back to that nationalism idea. Essentially, China has always, or for a very long time, certainly centuries, had the sense that it is the most um, influential power in the East Asia region. And for you know, 1800 years out of the last 200, uh, 2000, you could say that, that was pretty much the case. You know, Whether it was territorially dominant is another matter, but in terms of culture, you know, the philosophy of Confucius, the way in which uh, essentially other states in the region would uh, you know, make, make their alliances with China at that time, it was clearly the major player in the, in the region. And that changed horrifically from the Chinese point of view in the early 19th century when Western gunboats, opium traders, Christian missionaries, you know, Western thinkers, all these sorts of folks came along, banged open the door and insisted on basically 
remaking China in ways that fitted their norms much more than China's norms. And so China sees itself today, and in fact, quite often uses this phrase, you know, the great renaissance of the people is something you'll hear from the Communist Party today, as not so much the idea that China is necessarily rising again, but rather it's going back to what should be the natural equilibrium position. In that context, Japan is seen as much more of, you know, almost an upstart, you know, Japan really kind of got its uh, energy in the late 19th century with the Meiji reforms that led to its swift industrialization, militarization, globalization, you know, Japan being really the first big Asian power of the, of the modern era. And that once that was basically cut down to size, not least with help from the, the Americans after 1945, it was really clearing a way for China to take what should have been its rightful path. So in that sense, when China you know, expresses resentment, and as it does frequently, about the way in which its growing power in Asia is pushed back against by America, by Japan, by you know, its Southeast Asian neighbors, sometimes its answer is along the grounds of, well, actually, we were always here, and it's more a question of us getting back to that position rather than being anything new. Now, obviously, there's you know, half a dozen reasons why we would want to push back against that position, but from China's point of view, that's their starting point. Okay, so... Um... Let's talk about the U.S. side of the war as far as China goes. Uh, one thing that was stunned to find out, uh, because I'm not a historian, <laughs> I got the book around here somewhere called The Empress of China. You know, the U.S. sent over a ship in like 1782 or something to China. And I'm like, holy cow. <laughs> I, I never would have thought that, you know, before Washington was president, basically, or maybe right after he got in. I can't remember how it worked out. But uh, so the U.S.-China has had a relationship uh, since basically its inception. Obviously, World War II is probably, um, depends on how you view it, but uh, we I don't want to say saved them, but you know we were uh, uh, instrumental in preventing this Japanese imperialistic um, um, takeover or whatever they're ultimately going to do. Um, how much leeway do you think that still plays into the U.S.-China relationship? Because if you look at what you know the past four years on the Trump administration, I know some people say, "Well, we lost a lot of goodwill." So you have that, but also you have that the U.S. is just a big consumer. And so, is it is it a historical thing? Is it an economic thing? How would you balance that out? I mean, really important, as you've done, Ryan, to make to, to make it clear that this is a very long-term relationship. China and the US did not get together just yesterday morning. It's got a lot longer history behind it than that. And there are some great historians in the US, um, uh, Howard French, John Pomfret, and others who've written wonderful books about the long stretch of US-China relations, which I'd, I'd highly recommend. So in terms of this particular moment, if you can call you know, a huge great global war, nothing more than a moment, I think it's obviously a very important moment in, in, in that sense. I think it does shift the relationship in some really important ways. And the reason I want to stress this is that these are ways that the Chinese in particular are still thinking about, maybe even more than the Americans are. So basically World War II, I'm going to be a bit sort of simplistic and bold here, but why not, is the moment when the US finally becomes a properly global power. Now, Okay, it was big already after World War One, Woodrow Wilson, League of Nations, you know, a whole variety of things happened early in the 20th century that gave that wider sweep of influence. But even as late as, you know, the outbreak of, uh, of war in 1941, Pearl Harbor, the US, and again, someone probably you, Ryan, is going to correct you, but I think the US either had either the 17th or the 19th largest land army in the world. It was relatively small compared to an awful lot of other countries uh, uh, all around the world. Because, of course, America, apart from anything else, didn't have a big land empire, unlike the British. So, you know, it was in a different sort of scenario. Let's just say that by the time we get to the end of World War II, the situation has changed hugely, not just in terms of size of army, but also in terms of industrial capacity. You know, basically the Soviet Union, the Germans and the Americans were trying to outdo each other in terms of industrial production. As we know, basically the uh, Soviets and the Americans won that particular battle 
with the results that we, we all know with the fortunate victory of the Allies in, in, in World, War, uh, World War II. But one of the things that has, I think, changed, but I think I know, it's changed the way that the Chinese think about this period is that they have reinserted themselves into the story, by which I mean the following. They would say, okay, you Americans, you basically believe that the war began basically with you guys being bombed at Pearl Harbor, and then you ramp up, you know, the resistance, you come and put an arm around your Chinese buddies on one hand and your British buddies on the other, and eventually, you know, you destroy the, the Japanese and then, you know, reinvent their, their country as, as a peaceful democracy, you know, rah, rah, rah. Not so fast, they say. 1937, July, is when the war breaks out between China and Japan. It's not World War II at that stage, but by the end of the war, it's essentially, you know, that's, that's, that's what it is. And we, the Chinese, were standing there fighting against the invader for four and a half years until you guys come along at Pearl Harbor. And so they say, and then of course, you know, we know that China, of course, did not have anything like the kind of power or industrial capacity of the US or, or Britain or uh, the Soviet Union. But nonetheless, they would point out that they were in the posters that you actually saw in quite a lot of Chinese propaganda sent to the US during the war itself, quotes, first to fight, you know, Madame Chiang Kai-shek uh, was the figure that was frequently sent over, not least because she went to uh, Wellesley College and spoke uh, beautifully fluent English as a, uh, uh, as a result to basically rev up President Roosevelt and, and most of the American, American public. So the Chinese of today say, well, okay, if the reason that you Americans 75 years on can still have a huge, you know, seven Pacific fleet out there in, in the waters just off China, if you can have all these allies like South Korea and Japan and so forth, and that the point of origin for that is World War II, basically the blood and treasure that Americans gave, fine, we acknowledge that, but then remember our blood and treasure too, remember the not hundreds of thousands, you know, tragic American deaths in uh, the Pacific uh, War, but the, you know, 10 million or more Chinese civilians and military who were killed holding down the Japanese. Remember that over half a million Japanese were being held down by our troops for nearly five years until the West came along. And by the way, uh, listeners who are in uh, the state of Louisiana, which I believe you have some connections with, Ryan, might want to head over to New Orleans to the National World War II Museum when it's open again after the, the pandemic calms down. Uh, it's got fantastic galleries, one of the best museums of war anywhere in the, in the world. And they've got a relatively new Road to Tokyo segment, which includes the war in China, actually, despite the, uh, the title. It's done with you know, immense care and attention. And if anyone wants to educate themselves in a kind of very, very interactive way on this period, please do head down and, and, and see the museum there. It's, it's, it's fantastic. But the Chinese themselves basically saying, OK, US, you say that you were there present at the creation of a peaceful East Asia after 1945. Well, we Chinese were there, too. And it's time for us to get some of the benefit of that in the way that we look at the region today. So they're using World War II and their contribution to it, Ryan, as a way of arguing that they too have a stake in shaping the region today and that because of their contribution to the Allied cause, the world ought to be more grateful. It's, it's funny you mentioned that Louisiana, so where I grew up at, and I was trying to look up his official title, but um, Chenault, the Flying Tigers. His right. family is from uh, there and has a little museum there. And so I don't know if he was born there or raised there, but his granddaughter's there now. And so uh, I remember when I lived in Louisiana, like she would go back to China and would be considered like a, a national hero. I think they got a statue to him somewhere. And so um, it's, it's interesting, the connections with World War II and just random spots across the U.S. Of course, you had the big spot in New Orleans, as you mentioned. Um, so you talked about um, in the book, and you, you kind of alluded to it here, is kind of how this is viewed. And you talk about uh, later on the book, at least, about the, the show The Pacific and kind of how that was rolled out on HBO in the US. And then they had a kind of a counter movie 
not a counter movie, but a movie that was released at the same time in, in China and kind of how they phrased it. Um, so maybe kind of explain that. I, I want to kind of talk about that a little bit, um, but go ahead, let, set the foundation for it. Absolutely. No, thanks for bringing that up, Ryan, because that for me was a really interesting, uh, you know, positioning of these two um, visual items, you might say one was a TV show, one was a movie. So the TV show is probably better known to uh, American viewers, particularly if you can cast your American listeners, I should say, particularly if you cast your mind back to maybe 10, 12 years ago. This is 2010. HBO put out The Pacific, produced by Steven Spielberg, Tom Hanks, um, the tale of a uh, group of Marines basically fighting their way in the, well, the last uh, months uh, of World War II in the, uh, in the Pacific. And it was, a, it, was a, it was a big hit in America, not quite as big as Band of Brothers, which it was the sequel to, but it was still you know, pretty, pretty popular. Well, like many great American products, it was basically taken over, I'm not sure legally or not, but basically shown in China as well with uh, subtitles. So there's a great, uh, how can one put it, intellectual property transfer is the most polite way I can put it with a whole variety of movies and TV shows from, uh, uh, from the West to, to, to China. But as a result of it being available in uh, China, one of China's very well-known bloggers, uh, a man who's uh, non the blog, if you want to call it that, uh, is um, what his name is uh, now. Oh, Summer Pingbang. That's right, Summer Pingbang. He, he's he's kind of a neo Maoist, so he's a guy who thinks that we need to look again at the legacy of Chairman Mao and you know maybe learn something from it. You can take your own views about that, but I, I just put it out there. But on this occasion, he wasn't writing about Mao. He was writing about the contrast between the Pacific, the HBO show which he saw in in China, and a movie that was released really only in China, but it's you know, available elsewhere if people want to see it. It's called. East Wind Rain, uh, Yi, And this movie is basically, it's a spy thriller. And the plot is that basically Chinese communist agents in 1941 find out that the attack on Pearl Harbor is about to happen. They manage to get the information somehow to Washington, to President Roosevelt, but you know, being Americans, they don't listen to the Chinese. And of course the Pearl Harbor happens anyway. It's a great story, entirely fictional. I have to say there is no evidence whatsoever of Chinese communist agents trying to let FDR know that he was about to uh, have his, um, his ships bombed. Um, but this particular movie was then contrasted by uh, uh, Summer Pingbang in this online blog discussion. And his basic point was this, he said, look, these two things came out in 2010, this TV show in America, this movie in China, they're both entertaining. They're both pretty nationalistic, he said. They're both basically saying that we, Americans or Chinese, are at the heart of this story about World War II in Asia. And he used this wonderful phrase, he said, look, in the end, both of these pieces are about an expression of the continuity in competition between these two countries. In other words, these guys are still fighting World War II, but not against each other. They're fighting for ownership of the narrative of what World War II actually meant and who gets bragging rights afterwards in terms of reshaping the Asia Pacific region. And movies and TV shows are just a small part of that, but they show that it's not just about people debating law in conference rooms or diplomatic uh, negotiations. It's also about the popular culture. And that was really what I wanted to stress by mentioning those two productions. Well, it's fascinating because so Band of Brothers is my favorite TV show of all time, uh, and I watch so I watch it yearly, and I watch the Pacific yearly. I don't think the Pacific is as good; it's different. You know, like Band of Brothers, it's different. Yeah, um, so I, I watch both of them yearly because I think they're very good, they're very interesting. Um, and I've read several of the books that the Pacific is based upon, and the book that the uh, Band of Brothers is based upon. And, and one of the things when you read the accounts from those stories, or if you even watch the shows, is if you're a neutral party and you're kind of observing what's happening. You should be able to ask questions about what the characters are doing. Is this morally right? Is this morally wrong? And I found in the U.S. that the greater good, if it was to say the greater good of the war was 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 right, which I don't have a problem with, it um, doesn't mean that all of the individual actions of the characters are right. And in the U.S., we have a hard time trying to nuance that out and saying, well, 
I'm not sure these soldiers did this r- rightly or wrongly, or this was a good thing to do. Um, we're starting to kind of get there a little bit, but then it feels like you go the other way. So it's, it was interesting to see that because just from a U.S. perspective, um, we have a hard time having honest discussions about World War II um, and taking it very micro and then looking at it from a macro and kind of dealing with that. And so seeing that the China is trying to deal with how they position it is, is not a unique problem, I don't think. Um, for, for not, not unique at all. And if it's a really important point to, to bring up about moral ambiguity, it's one of the things I go into in, in, in some detail in, in, in the book. I mean, I think we understand just in a kind of macro sense that now we know a lot more 75 years on about the global history of World War II, there are lots of things that should make people feel very uncomfortable. I mean, on the one hand, without Stalin's Soviet Union, the Allies would not have won World War II, particularly in Europe. On the other hand, you know, this was also a brutal, murderous dictatorship that was certainly not winning the war for democracy. And if you don't believe that, then, you know, ask Poles, Hungarians and Czechs and other people who then spent the next 45 years behind the Iron Curtain. So those sorts of ambiguities really have to be grappled with and and, and considered. And the case of China, they're very much um, on the table as well. But of course, the moral ambiguities are, are different ones. So if you are the Chinese Communist Party, and I'm not, but, but if you are, then actually it is a very black and white story. You know, it's all about this kind of glorious victory of uh, China having, you know, against the odds, uh, with a little bit of help from their American British friends, if they want to uh, to remember that, including, you know, General Chennault, the, uh, the head of the Flying Tigers, who you mentioned a little while, uh, while ago. The ambiguity, though, has shifted in China in, in two particular ways, I would say. The first one is that the story has widened out, and basically there was one big historical reality that couldn't be talked about in China during Chairman Mao's time, but shifted quite significantly from the 1980s and 90s onwards. And that was basically the reinsertion of the story of Chiang Kai-shek, the nationalist um, Chinese leader of China at the time, who we now know actually did most of the set piece fighting. Just to be clear, it's not that communist Chinese resistance was in any way irrelevant. It was mostly guerrilla fighting behind the lines, very important and harassing Japanese. Can't take away credit for that. Very, very important. But in terms of the big battles, most of whose names are not well known outside China, uh, Taiyuan, Changsha, Shanghai, you know, these are, you know, big set piece battles with trenches and troops on both sides and, you know, huge casualty rates. Horrific. These are wars, uh, sorry, these are these are battles that essentially were fought by the Chiang Kai-shek nationalists without any real involvement with the communists in most cases. And so for a very long time, they were ignored, but eventually they had to be brought back in as part of this story of bringing the whole of China together and basically telling people who were in the old nationalist controlled areas like Southwest China, that actually the contribution of their grandfathers, their cousins, you know, even their grandmothers, people who'd survived under air raids and so forth to the war effort, had been honorable as well in a way that wasn't really acknowledged fully in the Mao era. But the other ambiguity, and the one that I find even more interesting in in certain ways, is what goes on beyond the surface of the propaganda. Because, you know, we're talking here at one level about museums and kind of official textbooks and things, which of course take this very black and white view. And that's true to some extent, even in the West, although obviously not as much as in, in China, where it's very heavily controlled. But when you get down to the level of families, when you get down to the level of individual experiences, um, this is where actually people begin to really sort of express resentment and anger in a whole variety of of ways. So just two very quick examples, because they show that the difficulties of, of this. One was a project which was undertaken actually by a variety of researchers and one or two people from the Chinese media in the 2010s, which was restoring wartime pensions 
to old nationalist soldiers. Essentially, because the communist government had not acknowledged the contribution of the Kuomintang, the, the nationalist soldiers against the Japanese for many, many decades, they were not entitled to war veteran pensions in the way that communist soldiers were. And this was an injustice that was finally righted. But of course, as you can imagine, at first the communist party didn't want to know anything about it. It took a lot of pushing and the use of social media and other means to, to get it uh, in that uh, direction. The other one, which I find fascinating, is the way that some of the really hidden parts of China's communist history after 1949, such as the starvation of the Great Leap Forward in this horrible uh, um, famine that happened after a big economic experiment in the 50s went wrong, are actually interpreted today through sources that basically use World War II and events that happened there as a sort of metaphor or analogy. So for instance, there's a massive famine that takes place in 1942. And people made movies and wrote books about that in China in the 2010s, but it was very clear on close examination that a lot of what they were actually talking about was the famine that Chairman Mao caused 15 years later in the 50s, but which is still taboo in China. And so you use a permissible event and talk about that, the World War II period, to talk about the difficult things that you're still not allowed to talk about politically, such as Chairman Mao's mistakes. So you talk about the, the 1980s and kind of new historians uh, coming up or, or, or new ground for historians. What was so relevant for folks who aren't familiar with the 80s and what, what set the table for this kind of uh, new period of history to be examined and told and looked at? Yeah, and it's worth saying that, you know, the 1980s, if you want to put a sort of date on, on this really, you know, after about 1981, this marks an absolute step change, a real kind of flicking of the switch in terms of the way in which the Chinese think about World War II and the process that's still going on today. Up to that point, as I've indicated, but just, just to be clear, very large swathes of China's experience during World War II could not be talked about because Chairman Mao's China was more fixated on class struggle and also didn't really want to talk about the difficult things like the non-communists, the, the nationalists being involved in fighting the, the Japanese, actually taking up a huge burden. But it did switch in the 1980s and there are two or three reasons for that. One was a desire for something that actually uh, is very relevant even today. And that was the sort of new push for reunification with Taiwan. Bear in mind that Chiang Kai-shek's nationalists, many of them had fled to Taiwan in 1949 when the mainland fell to the, the communists. And it was felt that by the 1980s, one way of trying to get the island to feel a bit more warmly about potential reunification was to be a bit nicer about their war history and say, look, actually, we acknowledge that those of you who left in 49, actually you did pay a patriotic role in fighting against the Japanese. Second reason would be, I think, the desire to kind of basically pressure the Japanese a bit more in international society, the feeling that Japan hadn't done enough to acknowledge its war crimes and by bringing up this history again, this was a method of doing it. But I think that the final and probably most important reason that things shifted so much in the 1980s is you have to remember what kind of period that was in Chinese history. It was the aftermath of the Cultural Revolution, the single most destructive, brutal 10 years in perhaps in, in recent Chinese history, certainly in the second half of the 20th century. Um, and this was something that had really exhausted people, not just physically, but ideolo ideologically, you know, the kind of fierce, radical class warrior language just didn't resonate with people anymore. They wanted you know, a break from that. And so a lot of senior figures in the Chinese Communist Party, some of whose documentation appears in, in, in the book in terms of their discussion, were basically saying, look, it's time to find a new narrative, a new language that can unite China around something that we all agree on. And the trouble is, and they didn't say it this way, but I, I'll put it this way, a lot of the things that might have been potentially there, you know, the 1949 revolution, the cultural revolution, were just not the kind of material from which you can make that kind of unifying language. So World War II came up, as in so many other parts of the world, as 
in that ironic phrase, the good war, the one where communists, nationalists, didn't mean matter who you were, you got together, you endured the air raids of the enemy, you sent your boys to fight against them, uh, you know, civilians uh, starved and suffered, but they made it all the way to the end, they never surrendered, and in 1945, they achieved victory. This was the story that essentially enabled the China of the, the opening up and reform era, the Deng Xiaoping era, to tell a story about itself to its own people, and to the world that seemed to be both cooperative, fitting into a moral narrative that in some ways was very positive about you know, helping lead the allies to win World War II, and most important of all, did not bring up those horrific class struggles again in the way that the Cultural Revolution, of course, had done. Okay, I want to spend our last few minutes just kind of understanding, well, we're going to solve the world's problems, so just get ready. Uh, but I love talking to historians because um, the amount of research and work and, and stuff that it takes to put out a, a book, whether it's easy to read for someone like myself or it's a really technical work for the scholars, it, it, there's a lot of work to even condense it down. Um, so when you look at doing history of China, so if you want to do the history of the U.S., there's a billion books with a, different, a billion different positions written by U.S. and everyone else. When you talk about going to understand the history of China, you have kind of the propaganda wing that you're dealing with, which has some level of truth. And then you have the untold story that's kind of harder to uncover. So how do you go about trying to decipher what is true, what is not true? Where do you have to leave the question marks at? Because um, from a geopolitical space, we're talking about China, how to deal with China. Um, I'm always on the standpoint, if, if the U.S. would just be openly honest, that's the best way to combat propaganda. Of course, we're not, but if we would be, um, but it's also hard to interpret what's coming out of China from time to time and, and where, where, you know, what, what is the, the truth or not. So I'm going to ask you to interpret maybe events today, but just when you do your historical work, how do you go through that process? Well, Ron, I think that for all of us who do any sort of history, but certainly those of us in my field of modern Chinese history, writing the complexities of the history and the awkward parts and the bits that don't maybe fit any kind of political model is absolutely the heart of what we do. You know, we take the evidence, we read it, sometimes quite painstakingly, uh, uh, and we put, we, we call it as we see it. So, you know, as, I, as I've said, in the case of uh, World War II in China, one of the things that I think is sobering for the Western side to realize is that, look, you know, China mattered during World War II. If it hadn't been fighting back for four and a half years before Pearl Harbor, then actually it might have fallen to the Japanese and the story, not just of war in Asia, but the whole of World War II uh, would have been different. So you know, that's a, a kind of sobering call for us, I think. And on the Chinese side saying, look, guys, the story that the Chinese Communist Party led and did everything and nobody else really matters a damn, you know, that ain't going to fly. I mean, even their own historians, as I say, have moved away from that. But I also examined in a previous book, Forgotten Ally, which is a history of uh, China's World War II, uh, 37 to 45, the collaborators with the uh, Japanese, the Chinese who actually went over to the other side. That's a much more difficult story to tell in China these days, but I felt in the interests of the complete story that had to be in there along with the heroic story. But in terms of working out how in an era when, you know, let's be honest, the US and China are not getting on particularly well at the moment and other countries like my own UK, EU and others are gonna have that difficulty as well. How can we use history maybe as a way of trying to uh, bring those two sides together? And I would say, let's combine two great strengths. One is that in terms of materials and in terms of doing pioneering work, you know, the greatest historians are still in China. You know, I speak all the time online, whatever, to my colleagues in China, without the amazing research they're doing in this and other areas and opening up our archives and opening up sources, we Westerners would not be able to do our jobs. But it's also the case that in the Western academic world, and that certainly has the US at the heart of it, although Britain's doing a lot too, I think, we can tell stories about China 
that are still hard to tell in China itself. You know, our books, if they're translated back into Chinese, will still quite often be censored or, you know, parts of them there, or the German have had you know, books also that really can't be published in China at all. And that I think is very sad. You know, in the future, China will be freer and then you'll be able to read anything you want there. But at the same time, for the moment, we have to acknowledge that in terms of depth, rigor and quality of the research getting done, you have to be talking to our friends, our historian friends in China. But in terms of the freedom and openness that enables us to tell any story that has to be told, the West is still playing a vital role in keeping all aspects of Chinese history alive and well until the day, not too far, far off, I hope, when they can be told in their home country as well. Okay, yeah, so let's talk about that. Um, you know, you talk about Mao and these changes in leadership. Um, obviously, Xi Jinping, I think he's supposed to be up in 2022, but probably won't be up for, so he, he'll probably be around long past that, we'll see. Um, my current take on the on China is that, um, it's not just China, it would be pretty much anyone, including North Korea, but North Korea probably does it the best, which is they are, they see the cracks in the foundation that they cannot stop this forward momentum of access to internet, access to electric economy. Um, and so, you know, um, they, they can't stop it. They're, they're doing their best. And so they're, they're trying to rein it in. Um, you know, any thoughts on what a, obviously we don't know how it's going to play out, but is when we, when Xi Jinping leaves office, should we expect some kind of reshift back to maybe less Mao, more Mao, depending on who you talk to, depends on how many folks are pro Mao in China right now. Um, when you, so I, I guess I'm asking like this from a historical perspective, what might we expect look at looking forward when we, when we see a new leader at the top of China? I think you can both expect certain sorts of changes, but not expect too much to change. So my own personal opinion, and again, others might dispute this, is that at the moment, sadly, my opinion, but sadly, I don't see a general move towards a more democratic or liberal future in China in the near future. And I think even if there were another ruler, actually that would be the case. The reason being that most of the people at the top of the Chinese Communist Party, as far as we can see, and not just Xi Jinping, but you know, others in the Politburo, believe that really in the last 15 years, for a whole variety of reasons, that the liberal model has not measured up. So that would start actually back in 2008 with the world financial crisis, which, you know, a lot of people were taking notes on that in China and saying, you know, guys, uh, liberalization of markets ain't all that. And then, of course, we all know that in a variety of our, our countries, you know, uh, I'm not here to cast um, doubt on anyone's democratic choice in the UK, US or whatever. That's not my purpose. But nonetheless, things have happened uh, that have really caused a lot of eyebrows to rise in China. And for them to come back and saying, so this democratic system you're talking about, the advantages of that are what exactly? Now, I have to say, I have plenty of answers to that. You can find me online in various places, you know, arguing with uh, Chinese thinkers about why democracy is still a great idea. But nonetheless, you know, it's not a slam dunk in that, uh, uh, in that sense. So in a wider sense, I would expect to see direction of travel, at least in the near future, regardless of who's leader, as being very much in the, in the current very, you know, repressive direction. I think when we think about Hong Kong, we think about Xinjiang, we think about lots of things happening in China at the moment, there's no doubt that it's much less free, much more repressed than it was even 10 or 15 years ago. However, I do think that there is a sense in which, while I don't expect China to become a democracy, I do think a softening of the authoritarianism, and to a lot of people that will make a, a big difference, is something more potentially possible. And the reason for that, I think, is that China, 
really, really cares. They claim they don't, but they really do care about their global influence. They care about the fact that they are looking not just, you know, in Africa, Latin America and so forth, but also actually, you know, in parts of Europe and elsewhere to be seen essentially as the World War II victors, as the people who, you know, fought for the right sorts of moral values. And, you know, they can dismiss as much as they like the story that the West is just you know, telling lies about human rights and so forth. But they know perfectly well that actually these are things that are really damaging China's image. And so I wouldn't be surprised if at some point, particularly when China feels richer and more confident and also its demographics changes about 10 years time, you know, China's getting old quite fast and it's not going to want to to, uh, to, uh, to perhaps be the kind of rambunctious country that it is now, that we may see it moving more towards something that is, you know, still for the, the liberal point of view, I mean, I use the word liberal in the sense of, you know, kind of freedom and democracy, liberal, not something that we would want to endorse for ourselves, but at the same time, not the kind of very confrontational state that you see at the moment. And I have to say that there are plenty of Chinese thinkers, and China, you know, has heavy censorship, but you can still read that there are plenty of people out there who believe that a more consensual type of China in the world, a more consensual form of politics at home within the Communist Party, but nonetheless more open, is something they can aspire to. So look for the subtleties, look for the nuances, and I think that's where change will come, not a sudden switch to democracy. Okay, yeah, I'm glad you nuanced it like that. That's perfect, because what I'm saying is they're not, I don't think that the Chinese people want democracy either, um, but less authoritative, less authoritative uh, uh, oversight. And so um, when I'm talking about a shift, I'm talking about a shift back to kind of where they were maybe a little bit for uh, more sure. to use that term. So yes, I, we're on the same page. I don't think they're going to be, <laughs> I don't think, uh, you know, make America great hats again will be flowing through the streets of Beijing anytime soon. Um, okay. So let me ask you um, one more question. I think here, um, what from the Western perspective would you say to our listeners is the biggest misconception about China in general? So the thing that you hear paired to the most that you go, if I could just get people to, to, to quit saying this and think about it this way, um, would you say be helpful for um, you know, Westerners who are listening to this podcast? There's so many things, Ryan, but because I've got to stick to one, I will stick to one. I think it's this. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll, I, well one, one thing I would say, actually, just picking up on your, your previous point, is that I wouldn't necessarily say that the Chinese people don't want democracy because we actually don't really know. It's, it's hard to, to put that out. But I think it's fair to say that that's not top of their list at, at the moment in, in terms of what's, uh, uh, what's, what's going on. I suspect, by the way, that if it wanted to, China could be an extremely successful democracy, but that's a, a different argument for another, another time. But in terms of perception, well, let me say, say this. The vast majority of news coverage in of China, certainly in the UK where I am, and I think in the US also, concentrates on a variety of things that are, you know, very, very flawed in China. And, you know, human rights abuses are clearly amongst them. And it's quite right that we should speak about those particular issues because they matter to all of us. Just because someone's in a different country doesn't mean you shouldn't have fellow feeling for them. And we should speak out often about that. But the danger, I think, in concentrating on that and nothing else, which is what a lot of the coverage is about, is that we fail to understand both, I think, what the Chinese state feels that it has done for its wider population, and much of the population agrees, and also what, you know, most ordinary middle-class Chinese think about when they get up in the morning. Because when most middle-class Chinese living in, you know, a major city, somewhere like Zhengzhou or Luoyang, you know, even Shanghai, Beijing, you know, the big, the big places, get up in the morning, they're not thinking, I really hope my government's about to invade Taiwan today. I can't wait for them to do that. Or right. I wonder who we can get up and oppress today. You know, this is not the way that ordinary people in China 
think. What they're thinking about is, oh God, I've got to go to work because my mortgage is really killing me. Oh my gosh, I wonder if my daughter is actually going to get into that really, you know, selective high school. She better, you know, get 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 her studying. I w- actually, what a lot of them wondering is, I really haven't going to get the money together and the grades together for that daughter to get to study in the United States after her first degree, because actually, getting English language um, education at secondary uh, level after uh, either for university or um, uh, master's level is a really big aspiration for for the Chinese uh, today. Or, um, you know, I. I'm wondering whether or not um, I'm going to be able to find sufficient daycare to look after my elderly mother who you know, is living in the kind of spare room of this apartment um, with me. In other words, if a lot of this sounds like the kind of stuff that everyday Americans and everyday Brits think about in the morning when they get up, uh, along with all the good stuff, like, you know, I hope we get to go to the park today. You know, I hope that we can uh, go to the movies tonight and see that, that, that movie just came out. Chinese people, most ordinary Chinese people are just folks. Now, a lot of really bad things are happening in China, and many of those bad things are happening in Xinjiang, and they're happening in Hong Kong, and we should never, ever forget those or stop talking about them. But they're not the only things that happen in China. And as you will know in a very different context, if people come to the US, and the only things they want to talk about are you know, the many things that we all know are, are problematic about the US or about Britain, my, my own country, then you get a partial view. What I'm saying is that understand everything about China, including the flawed parts, but see the whole picture, not just part of it. Uh, that's lovely stated. And I don't think people, um, it, it's, it's good to hear someone like yourself kind of espouse that because um, what I, I tried to distinguish, <laughs> someone got mad at me one time. I said, well, I'm really talking about the CCP. And like, well, my family's CCP. I'm like, okay, I'm just trying to use a term. That I don't want to say Xi Jinping every time I turn around. I'm trying to say that the bad people in government are doing this, but the guy on Smith Street, I've got nothing but love for that dude. Like, I'm not mad at him. I don't have no problem. He's got nothing to... Yeah, and so it, it's it's right. hard though because um you're like okay well you want to say China and I, it's like okay uh, well China well the CCP well it's not the whole CCP because there's 100 million members so it's a very hard thing but it's good to be reminded of that I think it's good for the Westerners to be reminded that we don't you know we you know whoever whatever's going on with the Uyghurs which is an atrocity and genocide or whatever okay that's that there's a certain segment of China that's involved with that but that's a very small minority of, of, of leadership that's in control of that. And that has nothing to do with someone on the Eastern side. And so it's, it's, it's a very complex. And so uh, Americans need to do a better job of trying to give them the, the nuance and the respect that, that we'd want them to give with, you know, whether it's the Black Lives Matter protest or, you know, the Trump, Biden, or whatever you come on, on those issues. So I, I think that's a very well stated. And, um, and so I spent an hour just talking, <laughs> talking about the importance of that because it, it, it kind of gets lost in all these conversations because we get very think tanky and talking about these high terms. And then there's, 1.3 billion practical people who are just practically living their lives. Absolutely right. And there are people who spend a lot of time also, you know, as I say, thinking about and aspiring about many aspects of the West, not least, you know, coming to college and university and so forth in the States or in Britain and elsewhere. So it's not as if all of our aspirations are necessarily massively separated from each other either. And, you know, having that very frank, honest conversation where we talk about the bad stuff, but we also talk about the good stuff. We need to get back to that place. Okay. Where can people find you? Where can we send them to? Obviously the book, um, uh, I didn't see you on social media. I don't know if you're there or not, but I, I um, yeah, no, I, I I'm not being on social media. I have to say, maybe that's my uh, oh, no, uh, my good. loss. But um, but uh, I uh, you'll you'll find me around. If if you Google my name, you'll find plenty of writing under my name in various places, including most recently Foreign Affairs, where I've got an essay on the world China wants. If you want to find out a bit more about how I think China is going to try and 
get to that position of global power. Recently writing on Hong Kong in Prospect magazine, available um, free of charge uh, online. Um, and actually quite a bit of writing in the South China Morning Post, amongst other places, and also on the BBC Arts and Ideas podcast, one that I host regularly. A lot of things, sometimes about China, sometimes not. Most recently, we actually talked about the geopolitics of Pakistan, another uh, fascinating place. So. As I say, if people want to Google or use a search engine of your choice, because you don't have to stick to Google, uh, then I hope people will find various ways to engage with things that uh, I've written and said, and always delighted to uh, to you know have people do that. And I found several of your speeches on YouTube, at Google, and various spots I'll link to as well, and I'll see if I can uh, scrounge up things to put in there as well. Thank you so much. This has been wonderful. It's a great conversation. It's a great book. I hope everyone goes out and buys it and reads it and continues to talk about this issue and trying to be um, fair and nuanced and understand that it's, it's a very complex issue that um, that requires a lot of talking about, unfortunately, and that's just the way it is. Well, thank you, Ryan. I've had an absolute blast, and I hope that it's not too long before we're talking China again, because one thing's sure, it's a subject that's not going to go away. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you, sir.